You're listening to Real People of Orange County, and I'm your host, Kimberly Martin. This show is a fun and informative look inside the lives of Orange County's best and brightest. These are people who serve their community in a meaningful capacity on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Well, hello, and thank you for coming into the studio with me again today. This is Kimberly Martin, and I'm the host of Real People OC. And if you're just tuning in, you are here at 88.9 FM in Irvine. That's KUCI. And we welcome you here each and every week on Thursdays from 4 to 5 in the afternoon. And I bring to you, um, I think, some rather interesting programming. I love to feature local people from Orange County that are doing some really interesting interesting things I think you ought to know about. So if you are coming and joining us every week, we welcome you. And if you don't get a chance to show up with us at four o'clock in the afternoon, KUCI has made it really easy for you to listen to our programming. If you go to KUCI.org, you can stream live on the web if you're not within earshot of 88.9 FM, or you can podcast anytime, 24 hours a day, and you can check in with iTunes um, by searching College Radio. So we've got a lot of options for you out there. And I'm so excited today because I get to bring in one of my very own special people from Orange County, dear friend, Jen Shirkani. We go way back, and I'm not going to tell you how far back because we were youngins when we uh, first got together. We were in customer service at Nordstrom. And so I have Jen giggling in the background just a little bit. But now today, I can say with a lot of excitement in my heart that Jen Shirkani shares a 20 years of experience as a learning and development specialist and executive coach. She is a speaker. She speaks nationally all over and is, um, is is bringing basically real relevant and practical life examples to the corporate world and sharing why it's so important for us to tune into this concept of emotional intelligence. And it's so exciting because Jen is here today to launch her new book. And so it's so neat to hear a little bit about, she's clapping in the background, ego versus EQ. She's really developed this concept of emotional intelligence in corporate culture. And so Jen, thank you for coming today and sharing with us what you've been up to in the last 20 years. I'm so excited to catch up. I know. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. Good. I'm so glad you're here. Well, listen, I think everything sounds great so far. And um, okay, so what have you been up to, girlfriend? <laughs> You've <laughs> been, been busy. busy. Yes, I have. Um, I have dedicated really my career at this point to implementing and taking the concept of emotional intelligence, which is also called EQ. And I can explain why it's called that. A lot of people look at me and go, shouldn't it be EI? <laughs> yes. Uh, but how to take and apply the concept of EQ into a very practical way and how to weave it into your organization, into your culture, into your hiring practices, into your leadership development. Um, because a lot of people might know of what emotional intelligence is, but they struggle with how do I use this? How do I make this practical for me and take, take the value out of it and use that to help me move the needle when I'm trying to get business results. So you mostly work with large corporations. Is that how this work or small cap, big cap? How does that work? Yeah, we generally work with the larger, you know, Fortune 500 size organizations. Many are here in Orange County, in fact. Uh, but we also work with some smaller family owned um, businesses. And I think a lot of the dynamics across employee development, interactions, collaboration crosses over. You know, it doesn't matter if you're in a company with 100 people or you're in a company with 10,000 people, we tend to run into the same types of challenges. 
people are people, right? Right. And so wherever they go, they bring themselves and they bring their their basic humanness to the equation, right? right? So you look at that with a large group of people, and it just I mean, it must just expand the issues that come up with people and makes them a little bit larger and maybe unseemly. So people try to grapple with how to figure that out. Where do you come in with all of this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I think it's it's common for it to be a, a challenge at times for us to know the right way to behave and, and how to get the most out of people that work for us, for example, or how to be the most effective leader. And like I said, it doesn't matter if you're leading five people or you're leading 100 people, you still struggle with a lot of the same challenges. So I try and bring practical, real life, here are some very simple solutions you can use that could have a dramatic impact in your ability to engage your workforce and motivate people and inspire them to want to work for you and with you. To be a happy employee is is really an important part of this equation, isn't it? It is, because as you know, um, no one no one enjoys working for a dictator, uh, even a benevolent dictator. <laughs> oh my gosh! Oh, I kind of feel like that as a as a mom at home, yeah. <laughs> definitely a dictator for sure. Um, but that doesn't play so well in the corporate world, does it? <laughs> well, you know, it sometimes people get away for a long time with. Um, with a very commanding style. But I think as things have changed over the last several years with the economy and the challenges we have with retaining workforce and generational differences that are coming into the workforce, what used to work pretty well is starting to not work so well anymore. So we have to look at new and innovative ways of managing and leading people. Okay, so well, it took you a long time to get to wanting to write a book. Let's go back and, and Talk a little bit about your career and what led you up to even thinking that a book was necessary on this topic. Well, um, I have spent, as you said, a little over 20 years now in the field of learning and development. And uh, I actually got my start at Nordstrom here in Orange woot, County. Woot. <laughs> Alumni, we're both alum. Of the South Coast store, that's right. The South Coast Plaza store. And uh, and I actually got my first training job at Nordstrom. So they were the first company that gave me a shot at, at teaching employees how to be good employees. And at the time, they were really innovative with customer service. It was Absolutely. a huge part of their magical equation, wasn't it? It was. And it was a great experience for me. I still look back on my days very fondly at Nordstrom and what they taught me about leadership and the subtleties of leadership. You know, there weren't a lot of hard and fast, you must do things, you know, according to the way I tell you to do them. There was a lot of autonomy. There was a lot of trust and empowerment in the culture there. And that was a great start for me. And it taught me a lot about uh, inspirational leadership and, and engaging people to work with you because they wanted to, not because they had to. Would you say that's what led you to pursue a master's at chapter uh, at Chapman in organizational <laughs> leadership? Well, yeah, I left Nordstrom and then I went to a couple of other organizations and I stayed within the training and development space. And um, I stumbled across this program at Chapman on organizational leadership. And I thought, what a great fit because it really ties to everything I'm already doing, but I didn't necessarily have the, the theoretical framework behind it. I just knew what worked at the street level, you know, if you will. Right. And um, and it was such a great program, and I highly recommend it. I think the professors over there were, were outstanding, and I've recommended it to many other people because I, I do think it's a great program. A great starting point. Okay, yeah. Okay, good. So, oh, all right. So take us to so, the trenches, if you so. will, some of your clients that are <laughs> in the area. What did you do, and how did you find your way? Well, um, I launched my business about 15 years ago. It's our fifth. 
we're in our 15th year of business. And uh, we have really focused very heavily on this concept of emotional intelligence or EQ because as I started working with in my own career with my own internal clients and then as I started the firm, it really became clear that that training and development only gets you so far. But over and over again, these other skills really started to play out as the differentiator I saw. You know, the ability for someone to know themselves well, know their impulses, know what they're good at, know what they're not good at, and then be able to read the environment, read the culture, read the politics, read their leader and that leader's preferences, and be able to respond differently. And so as I learned more about emotional intelligence about 12 years ago, I thought, okay, this is this is where it's at. This is where it's playing out. And this is where people who might technically be very strong end up losing their momentum if they lack this other thing called EQ or emotional intelligence. Okay, so you want to tell us why it's called EQ? Then? Yeah. <laughs> so the historical uh, background behind it is it was initially identified or discovered or labeled, maybe. These are probably skills that have been around a long time, but labeled in the 1980s by a clinical psychologist, and he called it EQ, emotional quotient. And his work was really on resiliency and what makes an employee or, an, or a person in life more resilient to life's hardships and challenges. And that really stuck, that whole EQ, emotional quotient thing. And then it was in the 90s when there was a lot more um, questioning of what is intelligence. We went through a little phase in social psychology around how do we define intelligence and is IQ really all there is or could there be more forms of intelligence? And so that's when this concept showed up and was identified as an actual form of intelligence. So it was renamed in a way to emotional intelligence. But it might very well be that one where the wife thinks to herself, I know more than my husband. <laughs> He's out in the world technically working, doing all the all the jobs, but you know, seemingly the brain, but yet she understands the subtle nuances of how to make the family run and mm -hmm. all those things, maybe really mm -hmm. give, paying some acknowledgement to that emotional side of the equation rather than just what you said, the technical? Absolutely. You know, I think a lot of it comes down to the functional stuff. The, the functional skills that we need every day to maneuver and use our technical skills to, to be most effective. Um, so I find that people, even very technically savvy people, and we work with um, uh, local Orange County employers here. We work with pharmaceutical, Allergan is one of our clients, and we work with technology companies, Broadcom is one of our clients. And so we end up with these very, very intelligent, very, very smart, technically savvy employees. But if they don't have the uh, emotional intelligence to go with it, can sometimes find themselves running into trouble. What are some of the pitfalls then that happen for them in their organizations? Well, um, people will stop getting promoted. So uh, we might be asked to come in and work with an employee who was on the fast track, if you will, was seen as a high potential and, and was promoted very quickly over a period of time. And then suddenly they stall out and they stop getting promoted and the company is starting to wonder what what do we need to do to unlock them to get them to the next level in their career and a lot of times it has to do with these more leadership competencies of inspiring and engaging not necessarily how well they can technically do their job or their old job so the subtle art of being human maybe yeah, I guess you could say that. I mean, uh, you know, the one characteristic about this, and, I, and you know, Broadcom's a global organization, Allergan's a global organization, and uh, we work with quite a few, and 
the element that crosses over no matter what country you live in or anything else is this human element. So we all we all struggle with the same things and and experience a lot of the same things. Okay, so the emotional intelligence component is about helping people tune into this part of the equation. How do you start with somebody that is missing the boat completely on this? <laughs> yeah. Is that I tough? Know. Well, you know, I think it's easy for all of us to have blind spots. It's very common that we have a different self-perception than the perception of the people around us. And um, so a lot of times, and, and in most companies, we're kind of stingy with feedback or we're not very good at giving people feedback in real truth. And so it's hard for people to stay grounded in how their reputation is coming across and how well they're doing and how effective they are. Um, and so if, if I can get in there as a coach or my team, one of us can get in there and identify what some of the common um, behaviors are that lead to the perception that they might have of others, then we can help connect the dots for them. And we actually see quite a bit of um, improvement in people. So this is where your life coaching component or executive coaching component really comes into play. Right. It's right. a big buzzword now, life coaching. But if you're saying executive coach, is this a lot like what you're doing? Is it very, are they very similar? Well, we really do executive coaching versus life coaching. And, and I think really the biggest difference is the life coaches um, explore all aspects of your life. So they'll they'll challenge you to explore the relationships outside of work equally with the ones inside of work. And they might, many of them might have a clinical training or background. So they get into some of the, you know, childhood issues and things like that. Therapeutic aspects. Absolutely. Maybe. Where we really stay on the executive coaching side. So we really deal with the issues that are happening in the workplace and how to overcome those issues and how to manage uh, sort of the personalities around you and manage your own behavior. It's incredibly progressive for me from the outside looking in that a corporation would go and hire somebody to help an employee to improve this aspect of themselves. An incredible amount of intimacy and Mm -hmm. uh, vulnerability really that is being laid out in that moment where they engage someone such as yourself to come in and do this for an employee. They must very much value that employee on on many other levels and want to help them. It's it's kind of a nice thing to see. It is. It is. And I and I tell them, you know, you're you should be very grateful for this because you're right. It's a big investment that the company makes in them financially and as well as the time. And they usually don't do that for somebody who they're thinking isn't going to be here in a year or two. You know, this is really an investment corporations make in employees that they know will be here for the long run or they see a lot of potential in and just need some fine tuning. You know, like I said, just need something to unlock them to the next level of performance. Okay, so can you give me an example of what one of these things might be? One of the like one of these uh, sticky wickets that you have to come in and fix with somebody <laughs> like uh, you need to wear deodorant or is it something oh. as simple as that or I mean like what kinds of things mm. are there like what kinds of aspects of this human behavior do you come comes into play for you what do you what do you help them solve well um, so one example is an employee that it was it's an executive leader that I was asked to come in and work with and um, somebody who was seen as very direct um, sometimes blunt um, they liked to say things like well you know 
Uh, I just don't really see the need to sugarcoat things because I'm not here at work to make friends. You know, I have a lot of friends outside of work. So I um, bet not. <laughs> you know, I, and and uh, and so I'm going to say things that upset you, but I don't ever want you to take those personally because you know it's business, not personal. It's business. And and really, basically, the message was to everyone around this person: Look, this is me. This is who I am. This is how I'm comfortable. So you people all better get in line and adjust here. You know. And so sometimes it's that subtle, it meaning it's just, it's how they come across to the people around them that we have to uncover. So you came and said, okay, we can't talk like that. <laughs> it's kind of well, like kindergarten in a way, isn't it? Yeah, you know, it's, it's not really charm school, though. A lot of people will say to me, um, this is just charm school, Jen. You know, this is just give everybody everything they want, and then you'll be a popular leader. And, and what it really is instead is is helping them connect the dots to how does it impact the work you're getting out of people when you're brutally direct and blunt? How does it hurt you when people are demotivated? How does it hurt you when you're always getting called into HR because people are upset about something you've said or done? You know, so I I have to really make something in it for them or there's really no point in making any changes. And probably everything comes back to productivity. It does. You know, how, and not not to say that it isn't generous for a corporation to want to give something that improves somebody's personal experience in life, but it's really about maybe finding that um, balance between how you treat people so that they want to produce more for their company. Is that that is motivation? It is. And, um, and it's something that I and our firm focuses very heavily on because... To me, if we're not helping you um, reduce turnover, which directly impacts your costs and morale and other things, if we're not directly helping you accomplish more um, objectives and and get more business done, then the coaching hasn't necessarily paid off. So we're very focused on how do we make this return for you, this investment? How do we get a return for you in um, your business results? Okay, you mentioned your firm. Your firm is called the Penumbra Group. Right. Okay, I'm going to spell that. P-E-N-U-M-B-R-A, penumbragroup.com. Um, any interesting story behind the name, behind Penumbra? <laughs> well, our website is penumbra.com because okay. it's so old we couldn't even put other words in. That's how long ago we I got. I see, okay. <laughs> um, but the the name is actually an astronomical term. So it's a dictionary word. And um, visually... Look it up, folks. Yeah, you can you can go find it. It's a good Scrabble word. Um, <laughs> if you look it up, you'll see um, a visual. If you imagine uh, a solar eclipse when there's... Um, the shadow completely covers the light of the sun, and then you see kind of a halo around it. Mm-hmm. That line, the moment that the shadow completely covers the light is the penumbra. Oh, very so cool. I thought that was a cool name. Okay, yeah, I love it. Yeah. I love it. Okay, so, all right. So here you are dealing with people and their foibles, their work foibles. Yeah. Um, what made you decide you needed to write a book? Well, um, the, the research behind this concept of emotional intelligence shows a very direct correlation between, especially for leaders, uh, leadership effectiveness or success and higher levels of emotional intelligence. But as I started to work with my executives, my clients, um, I started to recognize that somewhere along the way, their, their EQ would climb as they made it up into middle management. But then at some point, it started to kind of drop off at the 
at the higher levels of a company, which at the very moment they need it most is when they don't use it. Interesting. And I tried to figure out why is that? Like, why does that happen? And, and research keeps showing, you know, high leadership effectiveness, high EQ. And I thought, and everyone around me was saying, yeah, my CEO, they don't have it. Stress, maybe? How people deal with stress? Well, that's what I was trying to figure out. You know, what is it? Is it that you lose it? Or is it that you never had it? Or is it something else? And so I sort of set out on on a journey myself, because I just wanted to figure it out for myself as I was doing executive coaching. And the more I studied it and and, uh, found research behind it and and watched for these things, um, these eight traps sort of emerged. And I thought, you know, this is something that I need to share because no one else out there has written about this angle of emotional intelligence. And yet it's so prevalent. I, I started to see it everywhere. Interesting. Okay. So a lot of people, like you said, for years have been talking about the concept of an EQ as a, being as important as your IQ. But your book is titled Ego versus EQ. So that's probably our biggest clue into your different take on it. Go ahead ahead and tell us a little bit about that. Okay. Well, um, I really looked at, you know, uh, ego as the things I do that make me comfortable. So I look at ego as my comfort zone in a lot of ways. So it's like I said earlier, you know, if I'm that person who's very direct and blunt, then I just say it like I say it because that's what's comfortable for me. So a little bit more like Freud's interpretation of the ego versus the id. The ego is that, you know, that's that self-identity. Yeah, Maybe? it's, it's okay. it, it, it comes across to others as self-centeredness when when I or put arrogance m- when you just say the word ego by itself. Right, right. Exactly. Um, but yet, you know, as I wrote this book and I was looking at clients, I'm not really talking about the, the ego maniac out there. It's really not egomania. It is subtle things that we do that we don't realize leave an impression with others that it's all about us. Okay. And, um, and unfortunately for executives, by the time you get to the, the executive suite, the organization is somewhat set up to make you comfortable, to make it all about you, to work around you and, and keep you um, in your own little bubble in a way. So it requires even more diligence on your part to stay grounded and maintain your emotional intelligence. I don't think people lose it. I really don't. I don't, I don't think they just suddenly get into the, you know, get promoted to the level in which they say, I no longer have this thing called EQ. And yet you cite a statistic that two in five CEOs fail in their first 18 months on the job. That's yeah. staggering. Yeah, CEO failure rate's very high. So that's kind of disappointing. You work so hard to get somewhere and then you blow it the moment you hit the top. I know. So if we explore the ego traps, Mm -hmm. can we learn a little bit about how and why that happens? Mm -hmm. All right. So Mm -hmm. do we want to go into uh, ego trap number one? Yes. Ignoring feedback that you don't like. Ah, well, yeah. I know a lot of people that ignore feedback they don't like. (laughs) (laughs) And admittedly, it is hard to hear feedback. It is hard to to, um, hear criticism and, and, uh, and face some of the things in us that we don't like or don't want to believe. Um, But as I said, organizations are pretty bad in general at giving people 
practical feedback, feedback that's really going to help them. Well, isn't everybody pretty much fearful that they're just going to lose their job if they're not perfect? A and lot so of So that's times. why they maybe don't let people into that into that engaging uh, relationship of sharing feedback? Yes, you're right. And what you said earlier, it's very vulnerable feeling, right? right? If I admit to you, I'm not very good at something, uh, that's a vulnerability I'm exposing. And in some cultures, that's a very dangerous thing to do if you want to stay at the top. Right. Because most people kind of follow the edict, never let them see a sweat, right. and that it's lonely at the top. So that right. automatically lets you know, you can't show your weakness, and you can't share with anybody what you're feeling. That's right. And it is lonely at the top. And and as a coach, I, I end up really seeing that firsthand, it, you know, and the expectations get so high, like you said, you know, you finally made it to the top two and five CEOs aren't aren't making it more than two years. And and because there is so much pressure to be perfect as a CEO, you can't have a bad day. Recently, I wrote in my um, blog about Alan Armstrong, who is the CEO of AOL. Okay. And poor Mr. Armstrong, unfortunately, fell into um, ego over EQ because he was having an all company conference call. He was giving a State of the Union address type of thing for his company. And he had everybody on the call. He was sitting in his corporate conference room it's his big office in the sky yes and uh one of the employees that happened to be sitting at the table directly violated a a request that he'd made previously about how to behave at one of these meetings and it unfortunately triggered him and in the moment on the call he fired him <gasps> oh my goodness with the whole company listening oh no so big and ego trap yeah, I'm sorry. It's Tim Armstrong. Oh, Tim. Okay. Tim Armstrong. Sorry, Alan. Um, is there an Alan Armstrong? There is an Alan Armstrong, but I'm not going to tell you who it is. Okay. <laughs> Tim Armstrong. Tim Armstrong. Tim Armstrong. Tim Armstrong. But if you go to my blog, you'll see the article about it, and I'm sure it's, you can find it on Google. But Very funny. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's just a good example. I mean, these are good, hardworking people that are not necessarily these raging egomaniacs, right. but... They're human, like the rest of us, and they can be easily triggered, but they have to be very aware that where they are and who they're with is a very different situation than it might have been 20 years earlier, 10 years earlier. So what kind of fallout happened to Tim Armstrong? Well, you know, the press, of course, picked up the story and it got leaked. The, you know, the story got leaked. And, um, and, you know, again, I feel for AOL because I think they've also had some tough times and they're trying to instill confidence in the workforce and the leadership (laughs) there. (laughs) And he did not, he did not uh, recant his decision though. I mean, the guy was fired. He stood Um, by the decision to fire him and, uh, but he apologized to the company, which was the right thing to do, but tough, tough spot to be in. Very much so. Okay, so this chapter is going to talk about um, three primary EQ skills. Uh-huh. What are these and why are they so important? So uh, all of them, you know, all of the ego traps, the the antidote to them is is recognizing yourself and, and recognizing that in that moment, let's say with Mr. Armstrong, where he was just about to lose it right before he said what he shouldn't say. It's being able to recognize when your emotions are getting the better of you. And then reading your audience and your environment and knowing, you know, some of the situational awareness stuff. Is this, where am I? Who am I with? And and maybe even reading if it's a one-on-one with an employee. How is this person responding to me? How am I, how am I getting through to them? How successful am I right now in trying to get my message across? And then responding in ways that are most appropriate based on who I'm with and what's going on. So impulse control and managing very strong impulses at times. 
Okay. All right. So that's number one. Take us to number two, ego trap number two. So ego trap number two is um, is um, you, thinking your technical skills are more important than your leadership skills. Um, that your ability to uh, be the technical genius at your company or the ability to um, be the smartest person is enough. And people will look the other way on your kind of lack of leadership skills because you're so amazing, technically. Um, and, uh, you know, technical skills aren't necessarily IT computer skills. I mean, you know, fun- technical skills to do your job. So you might be a great research um a toxicologist or you might be a, a brilliant attorney and those would be your technical skills I see okay and so they think because they're such a stellar uh, blah 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 expert that they don't need to have leadership skills Is that right that, that people will give them a pass a little bit if they don't happen to be a great listener or you know what I hear them say is well I'm not a perfect boss and I know I'm not a perfect boss but that's just the way it is um, and t- in fairness to them, you know, a lot of organizations promote people on those technical skills. So we send a message to our employees, oh, you're brilliant. And, and very often we see the, the strongest um, uh, programmer get promoted to be the program manager, program manager. So it doesn't necessarily translate, though, but it happens a lot. Okay. How do you fix that one? Well, Give I think them a class. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's really important that um, the the self awareness again uh, that as you get into management, your need to do technical work slowly goes away because now you're at a level where you have to evolve in your role as your job changes, and you can't just keep operating the way you did five years ago, ten years ago, and that means you got to let go of a lot of those technical responsibilities and um, let your team now do it and, and rely more on your ability to delegate and give feedback and, and stay out of it and let other technical experts come to light. Interesting. I'm reminded of a time when my mother was in banking as a career for years, and she rose to the level of management. And the banking industry in the, I want to say it was probably the 80s, went through a really interesting transformation where they fired all of their regular executives and hired retail executives from the Broadway and the May Company because they were looking to find that fine balance between selling and marketing their services um, from from the technical aspect of banking Mm -hmm. and letting people see banking as more of a going out and getting the business in the same fashion that they did meeting retail quotas and um, monthly quotas for sales Mm -hmm. and it was such a huge mess (laughs) for that time period that it happened Mm -hmm. because all the people that were in the technical aspect of banking Mm -hmm. could understand why you'd want to hire a retail person Mm -hmm. to come in and sell banking services but there was a huge disconnect. Is that an example of maybe this particular um, one kind of going awry where they, they maybe let out the technical skills, you know, let that go a little too much and just brought in another what they thought was maybe a more important, you know, skill that didn't really match up with the service that they were providing? Yeah, you know, I think it's really important that, that companies look at a, at a balance of skills and they don't um, outweigh one for another, Um, And in your example, you know, I can see how selling skills might be really important if you are trying to promote bank 
uh, you know, bank products differently than you had in the past. Right. But it doesn't take away of the other half of that, which is, can I explain to you how a, a certificate of deposit works? Exactly. Which is a very important skill. Or how I'm safe your money is the person when I banker. take it shopping with me. No. Right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So I, I think it's important that organi- I think too many times we bias to the technical, to the, the know-how of the job. And we... Um, we undervalue the 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 nuances of how we do what we do and how we take what we know and use that with our teams. Right. Very well said. Okay, we're into ego trap number three, <laughs> surrounding yourself with more of you. Yeah. Fascinating one. I like the I like to I'd like to talk about this one. <laughs> well, I think um, what can happen is we we surround ourselves when we're in a role of being able to hire people. We very often uh, start surrounding ourselves with people who think like us. And um, oftentimes it's just because we're compatible, right? So we're in an interview together, you and I, if I'm interviewing you, and you and I have the same kind of sense of humor. Maybe we went to the same school. Maybe we were in the same sorority. Um, We may have kids the same age. We get each other's sense of humor. And so it's a very natural thing for me to think, oh, you're perfect, you're just like me, <laughs> you know, <laughs> exactly. And we're going to get along great. And so you're going to be a great fit. And pretty soon what can happen is you start surrounding yourself with more of the same exact thing. And maybe sometimes the same problem. And, and you know, we have the same strengths, but then unfortunately we also have the same weaknesses a lot of times. I see and, um, and we may end up with uh, sort of yes men or women around us too, because we naturally think alike. So our solution to things might be very similar and we don't get the diversity of thinking that we really need. And um, and I see this play out at the highest levels of most Fortune 500 companies. If you look at the board and you look at the executive team, one of my clients is in the energy business and uh, I was looking at his executive team with him and, and I looked at him for a minute and there was like eight or nine people on the list. And I said, uh, so I'm a woman. Why would I want to come and work here? Because eight out of nine were white men between mm-hmm. 45 and 55 years old. Right. And the more you look at, at corporate boards and um, executive teams, the more that's exactly what you see. And, um, and it hurts us, I think, that we don't have more diversity. As a country, you mean? Or as, as corporate, you know culture yeah I think in the corporate cultures I think I don't think our companies well represent our communities at the highest levels very interesting okay so you interject a little bit of that in your executive coaching then yeah is that very well received I mean do you find (laughs) that you get some pushback on that yeah because what I hear is well we'd love to hire more diversity but no one else is qualified Oh, but that's because they're using the same criteria that brought them to the person that looks just like them or acts just like them. Yeah, in a lot of cases. Yeah. Well, are you finding some progressive areas where this is actually working, the diversity concept? Yeah, I think uh, more and more research is coming out that, um, and I cite I cite a couple of these statistics in my book, um, that boards with more women... Um, do better financially. They have better earnings, um, better stock prices, etc. Um, and diversity of thought is making its way into organizations. And I think, you know, here in California, especially I work nationally, and I see a big difference from coast to coast on this. Fascinating. Where California tends to be much more liberally uh, open minded, mm-hmm. and especially Silicon Valley, where I do a lot of work as well, um, where I see more openness to diversity mm-hmm. and seeing it more as a strength instead of a challenge. In the Northeast, it's still pretty 
pretty traditional and conservative back yes, there. Yes, old boys network, maybe. Mm-hmm. All right, well, let's go on to ego trap number four, not letting go of control. That's a tough one for so many of us. Oh, it <laughs> is. We're all a little bit of control freaks, aren't we? It's just probably what makes our world go round, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Well, it, again, this is an example of what can happen to uh, a, a business owner. So the book isn't just for sort of corporate executives, even though that's sort of who we've been talking about here. But a lot of times um, a founder, uh, the, the founder of a business, even a small business, has a very hard time letting go and trusting employees to do what they need to do to run the business. And so they meddle and they they um, want to approve things, even sometimes very siddle, silly things like um, what, what kind of font are we going to use on our email and what coffee are we going to buy for the break room. And they, they un- unfortunately, a lot of times will delegate things and then turn around and get right in the middle of it again. So a bit of micromanagement yes, then, just yes. taking, taking on the small stuff. Yeah, there's got to be a human condition that causes that because it happens so often in so many aspects of life, not just corporate life. I know. What is that? You know, I think, um, yeah, it's it's the the, again, it's the vulnerability. It's the fear of what is going to go wrong if I let go of this and that whole recognizing, reading and responding really forces us to ask, you know, how much of this is my own my own paranoia or my own over uh, irrational fear about somebody taking the company and running it into the ground and how much of it is real and most of the time there's a lot more false fear than real fear there and so then it's your ability to recognize that and respond differently and trust and trust there it is trust that your team very difficult thing that Trust, yeah. trust your team if they look like you. Trust your team if they don't look right. like you, right? <laughs> um, well, you use the term servant leaders. I love that. Yes. That's where they just want people to march to every beat of their own drum, right? Well, you know, uh, I learned servant leadership actually from Nordstrom because uh, they walked the talk. You know, they they definitely rolled up their sleeves and jumped in when um, they needed to. And they were never too good. You know, the Nordstroms were never too good and, and didn't just sit away in an ivory tower office somewhere and just expect everyone else to do all the hard work. So I think it's important that um, that leaders understand that it isn't just now they've made it to the executive suite, so they get all the privileges of that executive suite. I think I misunderstood the term. So I was thinking servant leadership where you wanted servants to do Around what you wanted, you. but that's not what you meant, really. It's Mm-mm. maybe being of service yes. as a leader, yes. of service to your company, of service to those working with your company. Correct. Very different nuance. I'm glad you brought yeah. that up. Okay. And yeah, I, I remember those days um, yeah. at the Nordstrom organization where where you would see a lot of grassroots effort by all of the Nordstrom family, all mm-hmm. the brothers, mm-hmm. and they were in the trenches for oh, yeah. sure. Oh yeah, sale day, they were out on the floor with us. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> whether we wanted them to be right <laughs> next to us or not, right? It was a little, it was a little disconcerting, wasn't it? <laughs> oh, very funny. Okay, so should we move on to the next one? Ego trap number five. Sure, being blind to your downstream impact. So, um, this is when this is again some of the lack of self awareness piece and um, how easy it is for us as a leader to disrupt what's happening around us sometimes without us. Even even knowing it. Um, and I see this play out where um, the leader 
doesn't necessarily follow chain of command, meaning they don't go to the person on their team that's responsible for certain things. They cut corners and they go down into the company to the one person they know will just do something for them. And it just throws the whole system off sometimes. So um, they have pet people maybe they go to for certain projects or certain things they want and don't bother to tell the people up from them what they're asking for. Okay. All right. And the wider impact of that? I think uh, what it does is it creates a, a company that starts responding and reacting to the whims of the leader instead of sticking with a plan and um, and the leader respecting the fact that even though this is a great idea and I really want to do this, I'm not going to disturb what we have in place just because it's my whim. It's my thing. So one example I share in the book is um, an executive who had a, a corporate retreat scheduled. So all of his leaders were coming in from various states for this big event. And um, about 10 days before the event, uh, he was in the car on the way to work listening to NPR and heard a, a speaker who had written a book and um, he got so excited about this person that he came to the office and said, let's rearrange the whole thing because I want this person to be our opening keynote speaker ah. 10 days before. And just being completely blind to how disruptive that type of thing is. And if it happened once in a while, I think it probably would have been okay. But this was a chronic issue. He'd read an article in the Harvard Business Review. Oh, I hear we should redo our comp plan because this is the new great way to do it. Let's rearrange everything around this. And every month there was an initiative du jour that the company had to jump around to accommodate. And it was quite disruptive a bit of shooting from the hip maybe more than you should for a company to uh, right, follow right and follow. as a founder that's not an uncommon trait um, founders are typically creative and um, and impulsive at times do you at times help founders leave their company as well have you ever been in a situation to help them let go in a in a really permanent sort of way well um you know I I have I focus my coaching on whatever goals that person has. And so if that is the goal that they have to um, let go and depart and leave the company in a good place, then my goal is to help them do that and build a solid team so that when they leave, there's no vacuum left behind. Um, a lot of times, though, people want to do this while they're still in it. And it might only be they have five years left, but they want it to be a really good five years before they go. Right. Right. Really personal. Very yeah, intimate. Yeah. Okay. Ego trap number six, underestimating how much you're being watched. That's an interesting one. It is. Um, that is. Ben Bernanke has to worry about this one. <laughs> <laughs> it, you know, everybody's watching the leader. Yes. Everybody's watching even the look on their face. They're watching when they show up somewhere, what's going on. Um, another one of my clients in the area here uh, had visited one of his uh, communities that he supports within his organization and and they were doing some events so he had to be there for a quick thing and and he did his thing and then he left and I asked one of the employees after he left how did it go you know with the CEO here and and she said you know it went really well what he was here to do went really well but you know I'm kind of disappointed and I said why and she said well because we won division of the year this year and it would have been really nice if he had just stayed and just said hi and thank you to a couple of the employees before he left but he had to go to another meeting so he just rushed out and I thought oh man and he's a really good guy this is not an egomaniac but again it looked like it was just him you know jetting in 
doing his thing and jetting back out because he's very important and has places to be when they watched every move he made while he was there. They noticed that he didn't talk to them. They noticed that he flew in and flew out kind of thing. And they felt, I think, very invisible to him. Hmm. Not seen. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So advice to a leader that might be falling into this trap? I say it's really important that you get out with your folks. And it's really important that you understand that um, what you do and what you say as a leader is watched and mimicked across the organization. And it, it does require more discipline. It requires a different set of, of um of disciplines on yourself and I understand some might say well that's not fair you know I deserve a life too and I should be allowed to 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 do what I need to do but the reality is everybody will take your lead on things and if you do one thing and say something else you're going to create a company that does exactly the same interesting okay so should we move on to ego trap seven Seven. Mm -hmm. losing touch with the frontline experience um, customers so, maybe is yeah that what that means and employees you know and these employees. are the employees that work on the very front line of your organization and uh, one of the shows I talk about in the book because I love it so much is called undercover boss ah, and yeah. um, this is where CEOs go uh, and founders go in costume in a way in disguise into their own organization and they they play the part of a temporary worker and they have to do the work of their frontline business. So if it's Subway sandwiches, they're on the frontline making Subway sandwiches. And you watch their experience trying to do the job that their employees are asked to do every single day. Right, right. Um, do do you ever have a special exercise for them to go and do this maybe in the same manner that um, you see on Undercover Boss? Do you work work in that on that level? You know, I haven't I haven't made that a, a, a homework assignment for any of my, <laughs> my executives to go Put a do. cap on and go walk the floor. But I think it is so important to do. I really do. And, and at a minimum, what I encourage them to do is, is take time out once a week and, and go to the cafeteria and sit in your employee lounge or cafeteria and have lunch with somebody you've never met before. You know, take the time to get out of your own, again, comfort zone, get out of your own little circle, your own entourage that most executives travel with, right. and reach out and meet people you haven't met within your own organization. Go and visit every single location you have, every anywhere they happen to be in the world. Do not miss visiting at least once every location your company has. So have you had some examples where some enlightening information has flowed from doing a visit such as this? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, because it's at those, it's at the, um, the lunch table, it's at the cafeteria that people hear how their policies that are being passed at the top, how the policies that are being created at the top are actually working at the bottom. Um, and so being able to see how I had one one organization that had banned cell phones um, or they banned PDAs, I should say, you know, Blackberries and, and iPhones. And they decided <laughs> you said PDAs. I was thinking public displays of affection. <laughs> yeah, those are banned usually. Yeah, yeah, that definitely. <laughs> right. right? <laughs> uh, a PDA is probably even an old term. I probably sound very that's, old. That's right now. You're not, you're not any older than me, girlfriend. <laughs> And we're not saying. But they decided to um, to stop paying for the the iPhones for 
the frontline employees. You know, the, this is a factory. So it was it was the frontline employees and the factory supervisors and things like that. And they kept it as a perk, the cell phone reimbursement plan as a perk for office employees. And um, it wasn't until the executives started getting out and traveling around and seeing, again, what was happening at the frontline of their of their um, factory floor, but was that the some the supervisors that were overseeing production lost the ability when they couldn't use their phones anymore to see when a meeting changed because they're not sitting at their desk at their computer they're out on the factory floor supervising the work right, right. and so they were able to see that wow um we're our policy that we thought would be helpful financially is actually hurting us quite a bit and and what ended up happening was the most engaged employees used their own phones Aww. anyway because they couldn't do their jobs without, without it. it and they were just yeah. so committed they were willing to get in trouble to to do it to right. do their jobs right interesting and you just wouldn't know that if you weren't down in the trenches sometimes right you know? right oh beautiful example okay so we're um we're winding down on our time we have about 10 minutes left ego trap number eight really re- relapsing back to old ways that's something we all probably do yeah it is and and um what i really try and encourage people to do is stick with this you know this ability to recognize read and respond um and maintain your leadership effectiveness is is always important and um what can happen is we can start to slide back and and normally what happens is it's usually on a bad day right on sure. a good day it's easy for me to show a lot of emotional intelligence and self-control and all that but um it's when a bad day hits and I'll, I'll give you an example i uh last week i was in chicago on business and i was working all day doing training and was flying out of chicago to boston and my flight was delayed two hours because of weather quote-unquote weather which there wasn't weather but anyway i ended up getting into boston much later than i was planning on and i get over to the hotel and um it was by then it was about 12 45 a.m and i get to the hotel and i walk up and they say you have a reservation tonight and i said yeah i do and they said hmm we can't find it are you sure you have a reservation and i said yes i have it and i looked on my phone and got the reservation number and shared it with them and they said oh this reservation is for october 19th Uh not september 19th and you're and we're sold out tonight oh no so i'm trying of course to use all my emotional intelligence here right (laughs) to think my way through this summoning every ounce of every ounce of control i have and so i did what most frequent business travelers do i got my phone out and um and turned it on and immediately texted my assistant and said, you booked me for the wrong night. (laughs) (laughs) No. You booked me for October instead of November. The damn hotel is sold. Right? (laughs) Right, right, right. Idiot. Idiot. Um, But, you know, these things happen to all of us. We get triggered and we lose our our impulse control. And sure enough, I did exactly the wrong thing. And um, gratefully for me, um, I have a wonderful assistant and <laughs> who gives me a lot of slack on this kind of stuff. Oh, and if cute. there's any, you know, if, if I can, if I can uh, say in any defense of myself, it, she wasn't in Boston with me. So to her, she was here in California. So right. it was only 10 o'clock her time, not not one in the not morning. Not one like <laughs> you were experiencing. But she was great. She responded right away and, and took care of it. And, and if I, you know, again, if I were like that all the time, 
if, if she saw me using all this EQ and then slowly I'm starting to treat her that way on a regular basis, right. you can see how it would really hurt my credibility. Right. And eventually everyone's kind of looking around like, where did that new boss go? Because we really like her back. She's out selling her EQ book. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's very funny. Okay, so I, I bet that one was probably the most frequent one. You know, you give seminars, so you train people. What's the half-life on these seminars? I mean, is it a very long-lasting effect that can be made when they're doing this or do they need refreshers to, so that they don't do the relapsing? Yeah, they do need refreshers. And um, and like I said, you know, it's lonely at the top and there aren't a whole lot of people for executives to talk to that aren't inside their own organization. And so having a support network in place is really important. Having frequent ongoing uh, opportunities to get some um some feedback data we recommend a tool called a 360 assessment and doing a 360 once a year or every two years is another great way to stay grounded and connected to how you're how effective you really are being right right okay so I'm sitting here thinking about these EQ elements that we've talked about in the ego traps but you know they can really apply not just to leaders but to employees too in how they treat each other wouldn't you say? Absolutely. And um, and I encourage organizations to take emotional intelligence and use it at all levels. This is a skill set that can be learned. So if you have any kind of development, training, workshops, uh, book clubs, anything like that, this is a great concept to bring into your organization. And then we also recommend that you interview and hire people with these skills. Because even though I can train an employee to have them, I'd much rather hire somebody with these skills right away. So you can actually use a strategy to hire for this at all levels of the company. Okay, so that's something that we might want to say out to our um, listening college audience here at UCI. Some of these skills that they should be working on now at the student body level, what would some of those be? Definitely. I think at the student body level, when I speak to students, I recommend that you have um, uh, pay, start paying attention to your self-awareness, knowing yourself, knowing what you're good at, knowing what you're not good at, um, knowing what brings out the best in you and what brings out the worst in you. And even knowing, you know, if you're a morning person or a night person, um, because That's if you're going to pick one, a really. shift to work on, you know, and if you're a morning person, work somewhere that has a shift that's in the morning. And if you're a night person, don't be a barista, right? Pick an afternoon <laughs> shift. Right. Exactly. So even subtle things like that, I think are really good things to, to know about yourself when you walk into the workplace. And it's, it's really about being honest with yourself, too, because mm-hmm. I think when you're just starting out, you want to be all things to all people just so you can get that job. Mm-hmm. But the reality of it is it doesn't serve you well if you set yourself up for failure. You're really setting the whole situation up for failure. You are. You are. And uh, so I encourage uh, students to be very authentic when they go through the interview process and really work to try and find a good fit for them, not just find any job that they can get. Right, right. Well, um, any others that we can offer students for them to take a look at for this emotional uh, intelligence? (laughs) I think it's really important that students today um, have the flexibility and openness to other perspectives. I hear from a lot of my clients that uh, the youngest generation of workers coming in is sort of expecting the workplace to adjust to them. So as I said, you know, they kind of come in like, here's me, here's how I work, and here's what I need you to do for me, instead of appreciating the fact that they're walking into an environment that they need to do the adjusting, especially when they're new right away. Um, So I wrote an article uh, in our, we have a newsletter that comes out. If you go to our website, you can find it. But it's called How to Onboard Yourself Using EQ. 
because we put a lot of burden on companies to onboard employees successfully and orient new employees. But I think we as new employees have a burden too to use our EQ as well. Very, very interesting. Well, I mean, I'm just so excited to see, you know, I know where we've been. So where <laughs> you have gone and you're, you've authored this book, Ego versus EQ, How Top Leaders Beat Eight Ego Traps with Emotional Intelligence by Jen Shirkani of the Penumbra Group. So you can go to your website, penumbra.com, right. and that's P-E-N-U-M-B-R-A, and um, learn a little bit more about emotional intelligence. Such a fascinating journey you've been mm-hmm. on. What's been the most rewarding part of this for you? I absolutely love my job. You know, I'm, I am um, humbled almost every day by the willingness that people have to take this EQ journey on, because I know it's not easy. I know it takes a lot of vulnerability. It takes uh, a lot of hard work to see yourself honestly and take the steps you have to take to respond differently than maybe you have for 20 years and challenge your own impulses. And I don't take that lightly. I'm very respected, respectful and, and humbled by the clients who take this on and and really make a difference in their lives and seeing them happier and more successful, it's amazing. What a huge, what a huge, huge um, contribution certainly to corporate culture, but mm-hmm. um, you know, personally rewarding too, isn't it? It's very, it's very personally rewarding. And what do you hope to achieve with this book? Oh, I just hope that um, more leaders see themselves a little bit more honestly and they take a few small things and and adjust them. I I don't think anyone's going to change who they are, nor do I expect them to. I don't want you to suddenly be somebody you're not. But if you start doing some very small things, I'm hoping that more leaders can embrace this and that will make life better for them, but also better for their followers and overall more successful organizations yes and that's really what it comes down to is is it happier happier work life yeah and um jen shirkani ego versus eq it's been really really wonderful delving into the book and seeing you achieve so much success in Mm. uh in your 20-year career i'm really really excited to spend the time with you today jen is a native to orange county so this is really exciting hometown hometown girl all right well thank you so much for being here today Today oh and joining Real People OC. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Have a good day.